bestbookbits.com brings you the book summary on Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was one of the great moral and political leaders of our time, an international hero whose lifelong dedication to fight against radical oppression in South Africa won him the Nobel Peace Prize and the presidency of his country. After his triumph release in 1990 from more than a quarter century of imprisonment, Mandela was at the centre of the most compelling and inspiring political drama in the world. As President of the African National Congress and the head of South Africa's anti-apartheid movement, he was instrumental in moving the nation towards multiracial government and majority rule. He is still revered everywhere as a vital force in the fight for human rights and racial equality. Long Walk to Freedom is his moving and exhilarating autobiography destined to take place among the finest memoirs of history's greatest figures. Here for the first time, Nelson Rogalala Mandela told the extraordinary story of his life, an epic of struggle, setback, renewed hope, and ultimate triumph. The book that inspired the major motion picture, Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. If you were asked to choose the greatest icon of current times, who would you choose? It's a fair stake that a lot of people would pick Nelson Mandela, a man who went through a really unjust society. He refused to break and rather continued fighting, continued striving for justice and after decades of punishment, he won. However, what caused Mandela to have that type of power and belief? This book chapter tells you the story of Mandela's life, revealing the incidents that shaped the man. Chapter 1, Nelson Mandela's interest in social justice started while he was still a child living in rural South Africa. Nelson Mandela barely requires an introduction. The life of Nelson Mandela is a classic story of one man's fight against oppression, and will definitely still be telling it in future years. In 1918, Mandela was given birth in the South African countryside called Viso. He hit from the Costa tribe, a proud ethnic group that strongly valued law, courtesy, and education. He was called Lolishasm at birth, meaning troublemaker in the Yusha language. Glada Henry Makapanishwe, who was the father of Mandela, was a chief in the tribe, a distinction that traditionally would have gifted him with high social class in the community. But the British influence had deteriorated the authority of tribal chiefs. Therefore, the title had little political power at the time. Furthermore, the British could overthrow anybody who challenged their authority. That was because every chief had to be approved by the government. Mandela's father was really stubborn and regularly confronted them, and it didn't take time before the British annulled his status as chieftain. After the death of Mandela's father, another regent of the tribe, John Jintaba, offered to become Mandela's guardian. This would eventually have a vast effect on his life. While Mandela was still a child, he regularly went for tribal meetings at the regent's court, where he got to know about the dilemma of his people. One of the greatest prominent people there was Chief Joyai, an elderly chief with royal lineage who protested against white supremacy. Chief Joyai assumed that the close tribes had lived peacefully until white Europeans came in and planted the seeds of conflict. He mentioned that the white man was greedy and stole the land that should have been shared, destroying the tribe's unity. Mandela would learn later on in his life that Chief Joyai's history lessons hadn't always been right all the time. However, they really impacted his life. They revealed to him social injustice. Before we jump into chapter 2, if you want this summary via PDF, where you can read on the go, on your phone, download it in PDF, click the link below and I'll send it to you straight away. Chapter 2, Mandela first started confronting authority while he was a student at Fort Hare. The young Mandela liked physical activities such as stick fighting, however he was also an introvert. 
Also, he was the first in his family to attend school, where his lifelong devotion to learning and education started. The village school Mandela went to was completely British. The students learned wholly about British history, culture, and institutions. African culture was basically never talked about in the classroom. So Mandela learned about the history of his people from the elders in the regent's court. As it then, it was typical for Africans to have an anglicized name with their normal one. Mandela's teacher picked Mandela's name for him, Nelson. Mandela never understood why she chose that name. However, he suspected it could have been associated with the great British sea captain, Lord Nelson. Mandela studied really well, a lot so that he ended up finishing his junior certificate at Hilltown College in two years instead of three. Afterward, in 1937, he changed to Fort Hare College, where he studied English, anthropology, politics, native administration, and law. Fort Hare was where he would start confronting the authority. One night, Mandela with some of his fellow students began talking about the lack of freshman representation in the House Committee, and they chose to elect their own House Committee that better talked about what they liked. Mandela with his friends caucused among the freshmen and gathered huge support. After they said to the warden that if he overruled them, they'd quit, which would become great displeasure to the freshman supporters. Eventually they won. The warden let the committee stand, but the next year, things didn't really go good. During his second year, Mandela intensely supported a student boycott and eventually got expelled for it. Done with his time at Fort Hare, he decided to relocate to Johannesburg and find a job. Chapter 3, The Political Work of Mandela Started in Johannesburg Johannesburg was a busy city when Mandela got there in 1941. He wasn't aware of it at the time, however, in Johannesburg, he'd make lifetime friends who'd fought against oppression with him. Mandela had his first job in a gold mine as a night watchman. According to him, the gold mine was a strong sign of white oppression. A lot of Africans slaving away daily in a huge capitalist enterprise that just profited the white owners. But his actual aim was to become a lawyer. One day, one of Mandela's cousins decided to take him to a person who could assist, Walter Susulu. Susulu directed a real estate agency that focused on giving houses for Africans. Susulu, as well as Mandela, would eventually become really close and the pair would encounter a lot of difficulties together. Susulu succeeded to get Mandela a spot as a clerk in one of Johannesburg's biggest law firms, where he worked while he was studying at the University of South Africa for a BA in law. Gara Rabidi, who is one of Mandela's colleagues and the only other black worker at the firm, was a prominent member of the African National Congress, or the ANC. In 1912, the ANC was established, which makes it the oldest African national organization in the country. It intended to get full citizenship for every Africans in South Africa. Gura hoped that the ANC was the best plan for change in the country, and immediately, Mandela started going to ANC meetings with him. In 1943, Mandela has his first experience of real political activism. During a bus boycott that protested the increasing bus fares, Mandela turned out to be an active member of the boycott. Not only an observer, marching together with his people was terrifying and empowering. During the promising political life, Mandela also made friends with some other activists such as Tony O'Dor, Harold Wallop, and several members of the Communist Party. These links would prove important in the future, fight against apartheid. Chapter 4, the National Party's ascent to power marked the start of apartheid. The House of Walter Sulu's Johannesburg turned to be a hotspot for members of the ANC and the African intellects. Anton Labibi was one of the people who regularly visited the House, a prominent lawyer who'd have a huge influence on Mandela. 
Lumbibi claimed that Africa just belongs to black people. He summoned African men from every tribe to unite together and claim their right to the land. Reclaiming the land would abandon the Western principles and morals that had made a lot of Africans to internalize extreme feelings of shame about their culture, basically healing a culture-wide inferiority complex. At the end of the day, Mandela, Solulu, Lembidi, and others visited Dr. Uma, the head of the ANC at the time. They proposed the ANC from a youth league to get support, as the organization was still a bit small. At first, Dr. Zumu was reluctant because he believed that the African masses couldn't be organized. However, in 1944, he accepted to build the Youth League. Afterward, in 1948, something surprisingly occurred. The general election was won by Dr. Daniel Mullen's National Party. The National Party had operated on a political campaign known as apartheid, meaning a partners in the Afrikaans. The election had been won by using very racist slogans such as Die Kaffa, the nigger, in his place. Immediately, Malen came to power, he started executing a list of acts that put apartheid into practice. The Group Areas Act was one of the first of such acts, which specified that diverse racial groups had to live in strictly separated regions. The Youth League wrestled back, organizing a national day of protest, where they advised every African worker to remain in their home. On the 26th of June 1950 was when the national day of protest happened, it was a success, encouraging both the movement and Mandela's devotion to the fight. And thanks to the protest and the defiance campaign, a related political movement, the number of ANC members increased to 100,000 in only one year. Chapter 5. As the National Party's methods became harsher, Mandela realized the need for violence. The National Day of Protest strengthened the ANC. However, that also showed the power of the National Party, which only increased in endeavors to crush resistance. The National Party enacted the Suppression of Communism Act after the protest. They then made use of it to target Mandela. On the 30th of June 1950, Mandela was arrested for violating the act. Due to the part he'd played in planning and carrying out the former year's protest, the government had been targeting for a while. Huge demonstrations happened on the streets of Johannesburg when Mandela and others accused along with him first showed in court. And on the 2nd of December 1950, all of them were found guilty of statutory communism and were sentenced to nine months in prison. The sentence was postponed for two years, but letting Mandela keep on with his work. Mandela began his own law firm in August of 1952. It concentrated on assisting Africans, a lot of whom were now desperately in need of legal assistance. It had become illegal for Africans to go on whites-only buses, drink from whites-only fountains, or walk through whites only doors. Crazy. When he went to court, Mandela gave a point of being defiant. For instance, in a trial, he achieved to free a client by embarrassing her white employer. The employer had accused her black housemaid of stealing her madam's clothes. Therefore, Mandela took a piece of the evidence, a pair of her panties. He showed them to the court and asked her if it belonged to her. Embarrassed, she said no, and the case was eventually dismissed. As the matter got worse, Mandela and Susulu came to the hope that the National Party's increasingly harsher laws could just be faced with violence. Susulu attempted to secretly travel to China to request the government if they'd give them weapons. However, the ANC leadership immediately discovered, which caused a heated debate on the use of violence in the ANC. Chapter 6. 
the government targeted Mandela as well as other ANC leaders as the matter became worse. On the 5th of December 1956, Mandela was arrested at his house. The warrant for his arrest was Hogravad, the Afrikaans' word for high treason. He'd long anticipated that the government to make a huge move against the ANC, and now it had eventually taken place. The government asserted that they had proof that Mandela had orchestrated violent acts in the defiance campaign. Also, they arrested almost everyone of the campaign's other leaders. It was obvious from the beginning that the prosecution's case was feeble. Solomon Gubase was a star witness, a man who was sentenced for fraud. He asserted that he went to the ANC meeting where the leaders had chosen to send Walter Susulu to the Soviet Union in order to get weapons for an armed fight. During Gubase's interrogation, the defense provided that he wasn't an ANC member, neither was he a university graduate, as he'd stated. This was an extreme setback to the prosecution. As the court case continued, the struggle firmed outside. The severity of the matter seriously hit home on the 26th of March, 1960, when a misfortune happened in the town of Sharpville. There, a lot of Africans had come together around a local police station, showing against the pass law, which needed every Africans to hold their pass books when they left their designated areas. The police were terrified and opened fire on the crowd without any caution. A minimum of 69 people were murdered, and with the majority being shot in the back as they attempted to escape. More than 50,000 people assembled in Cape Town to protest the shooting. Riots occurred and the government confirmed the state of emergency, pending habeas corpus. But the court case improved. Though the state had offered thousands of pages of material, the judge ruled that the proof of a violent plot was inadequate and every of the accused was innocent. Chapter 7, the ANC struggle moved underground at the end of the trial and Mandela established the MK. While Mandela, together with his friends, was in prison waiting for their trial, they decided that it was high time to move things underground. Mandela was aware that there was no time to celebrate after his release. The ANC had to fight back immediately, and they had to change their schemes. In the ANC, the debate on violence had already been going on for a few years. In 1961, during a secret executive meeting, Mandela asserted that the state had left the ANC no other choice. However, the ANC leadership argued that the party would keep an official policy of non-violence. Mandela, but could firm a militant organization within it. The new militant wing of the ANC was named Uncomto Wisizwe, which means the Spear of the Nation. The short form was called the MK. The MK began by utilizing sabotage. Mandela had never shot a gun at someone in his life. However, he started studying everything he could about guerrilla warfare, sabotage, and revolution. Also, he relocated to a small suburb of Johannesburg, the Lily's Leaf Farm in Reneva, which had been acquired by the movement. Lily's Leaf Farm functioned as a safe house and training field for the MK, and that was where Mandela learned his shooting and learned how to make use of explosives. He, as well as other MK members, decided to make use of sabotage first, as it had the lowest risk of injury and needed less manpower. Therefore, in December of 1960 in Johannesburg, they exploded homemade bombs at a number of government buildings and power. Also, they started spreading a manifesto announcing the MK's arrival. The government was surprised about the explosives, which, scheming, retaliation, increased its efforts too. Chapter 8, Mandela was persecuted by the government as the fight became really serious. At that point, the government was eager to do anything possible to catch Mandela, who turned to an iconic person in the movement. On the 5th of August 1962, they eventually arrested him while he was returning to Lily's Leaf Farm after a secret MK meeting, 
They took him to prison, where he was joined by Susuwu, who'd also been arrested. During the first day of Mandela in court, he, together with his wife and a lot of the spectators, wore leopard skin karosses, traditional Kosa attire. He mentioned in his first address that he'd planned to put the government on trial and he didn't feel morally assured by the laws, because they were enacted by a parliament he couldn't vote for. He then narrated numerous cases where the government had declined the ANC's efforts to handle their problems through official means. The ANC had no other choice than violence. The key evidence of the prosecution was a six-page action plan gotten from Lily's Leaf Farm that implicated Mandela as well as others for the planning of the MK. It was clear in the document that they had been found guilty. The trial gathered a huge deal of international attention and quotes from the speech Mandela said on the Day of Judgment were published in a lot of newspapers. Vigils were done in cities across the world. On the 12th of June 1964, Mandela was proven guilty of all charges. However, international pressure on South Africa assisted in saving his life. For instance, a group of UN experts recommended that amnesty be given to every person that opposed apartheid. The charges against Mandela would have typically had a death penalty. However, instead, his last sentence was life in prison. Chapter 9, Mandela together with his prisoners maintained their resistance in prison. Mandela was sent to Robben Island after the trial, where he'd used the following 20 years of his life. Daily life was really ugly on Robben Island. Stones that were the size of volleyballs were thrown into the prison courtyard every day, and the prisoners had to break them into gravel with small hammers. The weather was boiling hot. Mandela was part of a class of prisoners that were retained under the sternest control. He was just permitted to be visited by one visitor and only one letter every six months. Also, his correspondence was seriously censored. He could hardly read the letters he got from his wife, Winnie. Solitary confinement was the worst aspect of the prison was, in which prisoners could be provided with the smallest infractions. Only failing to get up in your cell when a guard got in was enough. The prison was made to emotionally break them. Therefore, they maintained the spirit of resistance to survive through their days. When every one of the prisoners, apart from Indians, was provided shorts to wear, Mandela requested to see the warden of the prison, since he believed it wasn't decent for an African man to put on shorts. After two weeks of protest, the guards surrendered. The win was little, however, it was essential. The prisoners experienced a lot of other difficulties too. It was hard to access books and magazines, and any other thing related to politics or news was sternly prohibited. Luckily, the guards weren't particularly bright. One prisoner was able to get a copy of The Economist, since the guards believed it was about economics. Afterward, in 1966, the prisoners agreed to go on a hunger strike to protest the prison's living situations. Ultimately, the guards took part in the strike. The prison authorities understood that the strike was a lot for the prison, therefore they accepted the request of the prisoners. The insurgency had shown to be contagious. Chapter 10, Mandela together with his co-African freedom fighters had extensive backing from the international society, which pressured the South African government. As time went on, the guards at Robben Island slowly became less strict with the prisoners. However, the matter outside only got worse. But there was also indications of hope. During the 1970s, there was an increase in group protest around Africa, and a new more militant generation of freedom fighters started to arise. Mandela, as well as other prisoners, had restricted access to the news. However, they were able to get information on an uprising in 1976. During June of that year, 15,000 school children had assembled in Soweto, 
an urban region in Johannesburg to protest legislation needing schools to teach half of their courses in Afrikaans, a language of the majority of African children, didn't want to learn. Once more, the police opened fire on the mass without cautioning them, murdering 13-year-old Hector Peterson together with a lot of other people. Also, two white men were stoned to death. The incidents generated riots and protests all around the country. A lot in the new generation of South African freedom fighters were very aggressive and militant. Those who were sentenced and taken to Robben Island saw Mandela and other Rovinia prisoners as moderates. A lot of young freedom fighters belonged to the black consciousness movement. They assumed that the black man had to release himself from his feelings of inferiority to whites for him to free himself from oppression. Mandela liked their militancy. However, he believed their sole focus on the blackness wasn't mature. The uprising in South Africa during the late 1970s was fully covered by the international media and people across the world became more furious about apartheid. Free Mandela campaigns and instances were coming up worldwide. The Johannesburg Saturday Post published a story in 1980 with the headline, Free Mandela, together with a petition the readers could sign. The article ignited the debate in the country on Mandela's freedom. Chapter 11, the South African government and the freedom fighters eventually started to negotiate when they both acknowledged that violence was a lot. By the early 1980s, the fight was just becoming bloodier. What would be the end? The violence looked to be increasingly out of control, drawing society down with it. Something needed to be done. In 1981, the South African Defence Force invaded the ANC's office in Maputo, Mozambique, murdering 13 people. The MK, who turned out to be really violent, then reacted. In May 1983, as retaliation, they exploded the car bomb outside a military facility, murdering 19 people. Mandela understood that without negotiations, the matter would become very chaotic. The ANC had stated that they wouldn't negotiate with the racist government. However, Mandela began to see that it was essential. In 1986, after the government affirmed the state of emergency, Mandela asked for a meeting with Kobe Coetzee, the Minister of Defence. Shockingly, his request was accepted and he was taken to Cape Town to the minister's private home. Coetzee questioned Mandela what it would need to keep the ANC from using violent methods. That was the first step in negotiations. In May of 1988, Mandela and a committee of the state officials started having a lot of secret meetings. In December of the next year, Mandela saw the new president, F.W. de Klerk. De Klerk was devoted to promoting peace and paid attention to what Mandela had to say. February of 1990, de Klerk declared that he would cancel the ban on the ANC, which was still officially an illegal organisation that had extensive support all around the country. Also, he accepted to release every political prisoner that had been jailed for non-violent activities. On the same day, de Klerk met with Mandela and said to him he'd be set free. Chapter 12, Mandela was set free in 1990, got the Nobel Peace Prize and kept on with his political work. On the 11th of February 1990, Nelson Mandela was set free, but for the people of South Africa, freedom was still a long way off. Since 1988, Mandela had been detained in a low-security prison outside Cape Town. He had his personal living space there, which functions as a type of halfway house between freedom and prison. During the day on his release, Mandela was meant to be taken away from the house to the front gate by car. However, a television presenter told him to walk the last part of it. While he moved toward the gate, with his wife standing next to him, he lifted up his fist and the crowd shouted. Later on during the day, he delivered a speech from the city hall balcony before a huge crowd. He shouted out the word, Amandla, 
which is kosher word for power. And the crowd responded, Nagawatu, meaning to us. The next afternoon, Mandela said to reporters that he'd do anything the ANC considered appropriate. He didn't see any conflict of interest between supporting the ANC's militant fight and progressing with negotiations. The ANC would react to peace with peace. But the relationship between the government and the ANC was still tense. In 1992, December, the ANC executives chose to have a series of secret bilateral talks with the government. Firstly, it was decided that every party that got over 5% in the general election should have proportional representation in the cabinet. That signified that the ANC would need to work together with the National Party, which activated controversy within the ANC. On the 27th of April 1994, the first non-radicalised election happened in South Africa. The ANC got 62.6% of votes. In a moment before that, Mandela was given the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, the summary stops there because this book was originally published in 1994, but we know Nelson Mandela's life lives on furthermore. Now, if you like this summary and got a lot out of it, the easiest way to support Best Book Bits is to like this video, share it with friends, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and hit the notification bell for more updates. And other ways you can support Best Book Bits is to buy my book, Success in 50 Steps, The Proven Formula That Works, 13 Years of Research, 500 Book Summaries, condensed down into one book, Success in 50 Steps. Also, you can hire me for coaching and mentoring. Click the link below where you can do this. If you want to download our top 150 Best Book Bits summaries, the link below where you can download. I've done a course called 28 Steps to Living Your Best Year Ever, so check that out as well. You can follow our website, bestbookbits.com, the home of the world's largest free book summary website. Check me out on Instagram at bestbookbits. Shoot me through a DM up for a chat. If you want me to do a book summary, hit me up through there. Check us out on Spotify. All our summaries get uploaded first on Spotify, then YouTube second. Follow us on Facebook. We've also got a book club on Facebook. And if you want to be updated by email with our mailing list, pop your email in the link below. And the, another way you can support us is on Patreon. So we do take donations from fans because this is the world's largest free book summary website in video written and audio format. Hope you got something from this summary. Go out there, A Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. Watch the movie. Fantastic. Take care. Bye-bye now.